Welcome to another session of Rediscovering Jesus Through Revelation. We're excited that we have reached Revelation chapter 20. And uh, what are, of course, some more fantastic descriptions as we are nearing the end of this book, uh, but also uh, what one might think of as the completion of Jesus's mission. Uh, the description here that we're getting from John is uh, just really remarkable. And I can't imagine um, how encouraging it must have been to those seven churches as they read about uh, Christ's sustaining of their faith and, uh, and preservation of them for all of eternity. And so as I have been for the past several uh, sessions uh, from the very beginning of this great journey through Revelation, I'm joined by Dr. Donald Patrick Harris and Dr. David D. Pfizer. Thank you guys for joining again uh, in such a great conversation. We're going to jump right in to Revelation chapter 20. And uh, what, the one thing that we're going to notice very quickly is that this is a short chapter. And as we get into this conversation about uh, what John is presenting, namely that the thousand years of Christ's reign, we're going to find out that much ink has been spilt over developing various uh, theories of the uh, millennium. And, uh, and so we're going to try to wrestle with that and, and maybe draw some conclusions, guys. What do you think? You think we'll get there? Dare to dream. <laughs> Dare to dream. Yeah. Well, many people, of course, have uh, really from the second century until today uh, have been wondering about what do those first six verses in chapter 20 really mean? So let's mm -hmm. pick up the text here. And John, of course, writing as he so often does uh, and beginning as he so often does uh, with something that he sees. And so he writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong chapter. Goodness. All right. But he still sees something. Um, he sees this. He says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. And those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Well, here we are, guys. Revelation chapter 20 and the thousand-year reign. 
Um, John tells us again that he sees an angel coming down from heaven, and in his hand is the key to the bottomless pit. We've met this pit before, haven't we? All sorts of bad things come out of that pit. Right. Do we not uh, even begin in uh, chapter 9 with a reference to that pit um, in relationship to the fifth trumpet? Um, I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And then, of course, more of the description of that pit. And then ultimately, uh, we know that that pit has a king uh, over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. I think this reminds us that, you know, we're, we're not reading the typical uh, linear narrative here that we're traveling around and around and around uh, that we're coming back and seeing these scenes more closely with each passing. Uh, and here at the final passing, uh, we're given the most detailed and close up picture with a better understanding of what's happening. What is the significance of this pit? Who is this Apollyon, this Abaddon? Uh, he is the great serpent, Satan, the devil. And so do we, do we draw that conclusion then that uh, this is something that what some have suggested is telescoping here, that now we're getting a little bit more dialed in to uh, who this person is. So are we equating then the, the angel, the king of the angel, the king of the, or how does he put it? How does John put it? That these uh, demonic forces, um, it, it seems, have a king over them who is this angel. Is that indeed Satan? I think the argument can certainly be made. I mean, he is the, the chief deceiver. Uh, we meet the serpent, as it were all the way back in Genesis 3. Um, Jesus said he's been a liar and a murderer from the beginning in John's gospel account. And so we see uh, this imagery come to life before our very eyes in the pages of John's visions. Uh, and particularly here in this chapter, we see that he is so dangerous uh, that he's been bound and put in that pit for a, a time and times and half a time. <laughs> but um, the, the timing of it is very interesting in as much as the occupant is as well. Yeah, well, talk about that a bit, because, uh, of course, that's, that is everyone's curiosity is, is uh, where are we here? In fact, I was going to write that at the top of this passage. Where are we in terms of uh, history and um, in terms of redemptive history? Well, you've made a good mention of it in uh, kind of off-screen conversations, I think, that uh, we're, we're seeing the, the repeat, as it were, of certain events where 
you know, we've, we've repeated this theme at the end of each septet, uh, the, the silence in heaven, uh, the ending uh, between the fifth and, or the sixth and seventh trumpet, and, and now here. What we are witnessing is kind of the re- repeating of evidence, as it were, more and more evidence of God's sovereignty over evil, that Satan is not the, uh, the opposite of God. And in God's sovereignty, we see God's plan unfolding. And I think it's um, N.T. Wright who talks about Satan in a, a similar fashion to the way Tolkien uh, wrote and used the character of Gollum in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, if you are familiar with that storyline, you may remember in the first book of The Lord of the Rings uh, that. Frodo wondered why uh, they didn't just kill Gollum. And it was Gandalf who said to Frodo, who knows what role he has yet to play. And we see that role uh, kind of playing out in a sense of the character of Satan. Why didn't, why wasn't he put to death with the, the beast and the false prophet? Uh, because he still has a role to play, albeit it's way above my pay grade to be able to define what that role is per se. But uh, because Satan is is bound and cast down into this bottomless pit uh, for a time, we're we're recognizing that everything that has gone on in this book, uh, we're reminded here that God is sovereign, that He has a plan, that these judgments, uh, the, the pouring out of God's wrath here and there is, is not violence as we have, as we see violence in our world. God is not, uh, a violent God in that sense, but his, his wrath is measured. It is purposeful. And here Satan is put away for a time. And the question that we need to ask is why? What, what purpose does John tell us in this short chapter? And I think he does uh, through the use of symbols. And there's quite a few symbols here. Uh, is this a literal binding? Is, is Satan bound with a literal chain and thrown into a literal pit? Uh, to some degree, perhaps. But the flip side is we've, we've come to one of the most controversial passages in all of scripture, let alone revelation. And uh, I think we're all at least semi-confident we have a, a, a basic and biblical interpretation of this passage, but in wrestling with all the different possibilities, we come to see how God's plan is unfolding. When it comes to trying to place this, where are we in a temporal sense, uh, I'm a little bit torn. Actually, I'm quite a bit torn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know the answer I'm supposed to give from my theological tradition, which is reformed. <laughs> and that position is that uh, basically Satan is now chained, chained so that he cannot uh, tempt 
uh, those who follow God, who trust in Christ. But I tell you, it does not look and it does not feel as though Satan is on a chain at all. Now, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I don't know the ultimate horror of what it would be like. But the things don't seem good around the world. There seems to be a pervasive, demonic, satanic sort of vibe or even just philosophically and theologically, uh, behaviorally, I, I don't think that, I'm not real comfortable saying that Satan is chained. So that's leading me to a, another place, is that perhaps this is a an event, something that happens in time, space, and history that has not yet come to pass. So that's where I'm leaning because we we have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the cup or the bowl judgments, and in between each of the series of judgments, we have what some have called an interlude or what I would prefer to refer to as a refocusing going between heaven and earth and the different themes that we see of true worship in heaven, false worship on earth. And my purpose is not to beat that drum, but to say that the things that are in between the series of judgments, the septets that we've talked about, we have a lot of discussion about what goes on in heaven and what goes on and what goes on on earth besides. And so I would say such may be the case here that we have not left the bold judgments necessarily. Uh, we have seen the outpouring of all the cups or the bowls, but we have not yet seen the full effects of what's going to happen. You put this together with the recapitulation, and we understand that we're going uh, and coming back and forth between different themes. And here I think we have the, you know, the ultimate end of Satan, there will come a time when he will not have the influence that he does today. And so I, I would put the question back to you, am I crazy in going against my tradition on this point, or do I have a small bit of ground to stand on, however shaky it might be? Or is it all settled, and I just need to give in? <laughs> Well, I, I would say that since David is of the same tradition, that he needs to answer that question. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Um, I would say that I don't understand Satan's binding to be a removal of him from affecting events on the earthly stage. Let me put it that way. And I'm I'm not entirely sure that that's, at least that's not what I think the way the, the Reformed tradition teaches it. Um, what I do think is that whatever this binding of Satan is, I think it corresponds to Jesus's earthly incarnation, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension, and then through uh, the church age, if, if you will. 
and that it will uh, conclude right before uh, Jesus's return. So I see it as a curtailment, if you will, of Satan's ability to deceive the nations, Mm -hmm. uh, of Satan's ability to completely wipe out God's church. Um, And it very well could be that because we're seeing, well, let me step back and, and Make this obs- or make the ask this question as an observation of sorts. Are we seeing an uptick of resistance to the gospel across the globe, or is it more localized to North America, Europe, Western culture at large? Because I do think we people uh, have a preponderance to see what's going on in our neck of the woods and kind of universalize the experience theologically speaking. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that's what you're doing, Don. So please don't take that as an attack. Um, what, what I mean is that, you know, the, the church is growing in so many parts of the world right now. I don't want to say thriving because a lot of that growth is coming uh, as the result of opposition, if not persecution. But what we see in our neck of the woods is a growing opposition and potentially uh, the the coming of persecution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, my question is, is our own local experience clouding our vision? Or is this an uptick of demonic opposition and spiritual attacks on a global level. Um, and, and it's not just Satan that's out there, right? And, and maybe John means for the binding of Satan to be symbolic of all demonic activity, but I don't think so because um, actually just this last Sunday, I was preaching on Luke 11 uh, verses 13 through 28, where Jesus talks about, well, he casts the demon out of the mute man, and the Pharisees challenge him on this. They say he's uh, casting out these demons by the power of Beelzebul. And Jesus is just like, you guys are whacked. Um, if, If Satan is casting out Satan, then his kingdom will not stand. And then he goes on to tell the parable of the strong man and how the stronger man comes and binds him and takes his armor and all of his spoil. And of course, Jesus is the stronger man. So there's a sense in which Satan is bound in that his influence is not as great as it was. And as I told my folks uh, in my sermon, is that we who have come to saving faith in Christ are the spoil that Jesus has taken from the strong man. So I I tend to lean with our Reformed tradition, not because it's our tradition, but because I I do think the exegesis and interpretation uh, is the the best I've found so far. Mm -hmm. Is that helpful? I hope it's helpful for our listeners. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, no, I think well, it's helpful in the sense of 
uh, you just did a marvelous job explaining the the reform tradition. Uh, and and this is the the amillennial or inaugurated millennial. Uh, yeah, tradition. I would like to form something of a response. Mm-hmm. In, in verse three, we have this purpose clause so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that does not seem to be the reality. So not only is there is an exegetical pointer with a purpose clause, mm-hmm. um, but there's also, we have this phrase following uh, a temporal clause, until the thousand years were ended. After that, a sequence, he must be released for a little while. So here we are at the end of the age, and by one view, it is saying, well, things are pretty good. Satan is, you know, not running wild and crazy. But take heart, there's coming a time when he will. <laughs> it's a non sequitur for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but while you were talking, David, I thought, okay, maybe I can take this. Uh, I don't know if this is even the right word to describe it, but a proleptic sense that we know that finally, in the ultimate end, Satan is defeated. And of course, that's true. The incarnation, the resurrection, uh, the ascension. Uh, We had the flow of salvation history uh, back in uh, chapter 7, and 18, no, where was it that we saw that? Um, yeah, in in chapter 17, I believe. 17, uh, 6 through 14. And, and so I, I can accept that. I mean, I can see that. I know that I'm not at all questioning the ultimate outcome. Right. Mm. But as someone has said, if Satan was cast into the abyss and chained and and notice the language that's used there, it says not only was he seized um, and bound and thrown into the pit, uh, but the pit was shut and it was sealed. Well, if that's actually what happened to Satan and, and he's chained, he's in the abyss, then as someone else has said, uh, one of my uh, seminary uh, theology professors said, well, then he must be on a very long chain. Mm-hmm. And, but he said it, it he, he said that in a derisive way. I'm uh, sure he did. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I didn't like that. So I, I, you know, I'm not throwing this in there to complicate the matter, but what I'm saying is it's a real problem for, interpretation when you're just looking at the passage. That is a great point, Don. And my rejoinder to that is this. Going all the way back to Genesis, uh, we see three great fallings. Okay, we, we, There's the fall that we take uh, in Genesis 3. Then we have the, the fall of certain angels in Genesis 6 who turn against God's plan. And then we see uh, this this great fall away of the nations from God and angels who were supposed to uh, be shepherding these nations. God took Israel as his own, 
but we see that all these other nations have fallen into idolatry. Prior to the Tower of Babel, there's no mention of idolatry whatsoever. And then the tower happens, and we see in uh, Genesis 12, what does God do with Abraham? He's calling him out of idolatry. He's calling him back to himself so that he can start his own inheritance among the nations. That's part of it. The other part is that, and I'm, I'm, I lost my train of thought for a second. Um, again, what do we mean by the nations? You know, that he can't, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. I don't think we're talking necessarily political nations. We're talking ethnos. And I think this is exactly why Jesus says, all authority has been granted to me. Therefore, go out and make disciples of all nations. Because Satan is no longer able to uh, blind them in the same way that he had prior to Christ's coming. Okay. It's it's not to say that people are not deceived, but maybe they're not deceived purely because of Satan. The deception is that of their own hearts, as well as whatever practices they've given themselves over to. Mm. But um, I, I, I will take very literally Christ's authority, and I'm not suggesting you or anybody else isn't, but I take it seriously in the sense that if Christ has given us this great commission and the authority therein and the power through the spirit, then there's been a major shift on the spiritual level of things. And I think that's what we're seeing here in this passage. We're seeing that, that shift that took place and it is allowed for the church to go out from Jerusalem out of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And of course, again, I think whatever period of time we're in gives us a different perspective on what that looks like. For us, uh, we're at a very odd time. And, and maybe we are at the end of that thousand years. And maybe Satan has been let off the chain, so to speak. Um, it, it's hard to say. Of course, it's like, um, uh, I can't think of that silly saying now, but um, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? We won't really know until we're past it and we can reflect on it. And more than likely, we won't really know until Jesus comes back. But um, anyhow, that's, that's how I reconcile all this. I am not at all uh, put off by somebody derisively saying, well, he must be on a very long chain. I, I think he probably is. And it's just like, you know, we have a neighbor who has a very loud, hostile sounding dog, and the dog runs into the fence when he when we walk by. And I'm so used to it, it doesn't bother me as much. But I have a friend who has come over, and every time he comes over, that dog runs into that fence, barking like he's going to rip the guy's head off. And my friend jumps a couple feet high because it, it scares him every time. And that's kind of the imagery I see. Satan. I don't want to say Satan's bark is worse than his bite, because we know that's not true. But if if he is being held back in some way, 
then we certainly can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, for God is with us. Well, let me say that I can assure you that with a full and rejoicing heart, I do sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He Amen. sets the prisoner free. His right. blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So it doesn't keep me from singing. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll also enter here. Let me play the other side of my argument. I told you that I have a, a few problems with this. But on the other hand, let's consider, as we've already said numerous times before, we are not looking at a linear composition or a linear narrative. Mm -hmm. We are circling back and getting more detail all the time. And all of this that was written is, for the most part, most of uh, the majority of what's written in Revelation was even future to the people who heard it for the first time. I mean, even if it was only a week or a month, <laughs> it was still future to them. But um, the other thing we have here is apocalyptic. And just trying to understand how do we read apocalyptic in this case? How much do we take literally? So, for example, he seized the dragon by the neck and shook him by the scruff of neck, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Okay, maybe I added a few things in there. But, you know, did he lay hands on him? Did he... Um, literally bind him? Did he literally throw him down? Maybe what we need to focus on is that, because what we have already mentioned, the, the flow of salvation history, the incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension into glory, that what we're seeing here is Christ the victor is indeed the winner. Satan is the loser. And it doesn't matter who he has influenced or controlled in the past, but he breaks the power of canceled sin. So that that's where looking at it apocalyptically helps me draw back a little bit uh, from my emotional attachment to, you know, trying to make sense of this on a timeline. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Uh, I'll just mention, too, uh, we want to take note in verse 3, where it says that so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, we have noted throughout the mention of the nations and that this is the providence of the gospel. Uh, although Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the gospel brings light. It uh, illumines the mind and the understanding so that people can see and hear and believe. And I just want to reinforce that uh, at this thousand-year descriptive time that we have, that uh, the nations are still very much in view. So God's heart is involved here. Mm -hmm. uh, God's heart for the nations, his desire for the gospel to go forth. And then I'll just mention that in verse 4, we have, Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads, 
foreheads and their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So once again, we're pointed to the difference between false worship and true worship. But somehow, even with the binding of Satan and with this reign of Christ, they are linked together by this thousand-year term. Whether Actually, I don't have a problem that it could be a thousand years unless I have to take that. Uh, yeah, let me back off there. Maybe you can edit me out, Michael. I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> Um, I can feel like I'm getting myself in hot water with my own tradition, uh, but maybe that's good. That uh, So it, it's probably not literal here, but if it was literal, I don't think I would have a problem with it because it, it doesn't affect me that much unless you're saying it's the incarnation, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ that is encompassed in this 1,000 years. That's where I would come at odds with my tradition. Uh, but I'm saying I don't think it matters that much whether it's literal or whether it's metaphorical. Um, not so much to, to what Don has said, but um, it's just an, an interesting extra biblical perspective on what we're reading here is that Elizabeth Shively uh, wrote on how both the the book of the watchers in first Enoch and certain prophetic utterances in Isaiah uh, tell a similar story of the overthrow and destruction of Satan and his cohorts. So she's not suggesting that John got the idea from these other writings or that he is imitating them. Uh, but as she says, uh, this short passage shares a structure, language, and ideas with other ancient Jewish texts. And uh, that as, as her essay goes on to talk about, uh, she looks at how John employs this stream of exegetical tradition. So the fact that this comes up in, uh, you know, places like Isaiah chapter 14 and Isaiah chapter 24, that we see this in apocalyptic second temple literature. I see it as something of a corroboration that not that uh, second temple literature is necessarily inspired. I'm not trying to suggest that it's equal to scripture, but I'm saying that it very well could hint at that this isn't just something John saw, but this, the spirit was at work um, communicating this message of Satan's final downfall. And we know that to be true in scripture anyhow, but um, to me, it's just encouraging that here are these other voices one inspired in terms of Isaiah, one not necessarily inspired to the same level or way in uh, Enoch. But we have this corroboration of sorts, um, similar stories, similar tellings. And to me, it's encouraging that none of them disagree. Good. Well, what a good discussion. Mm -hmm. um, 
what I'm hearing, let me let me uh, just maybe try to synthesize what I'm hearing from you two, because uh, to be honest, I'm just as puzzled by uh, the chapter 20 as anybody. Um, it, it does, you know, there's a there's a part of it that does sound like that uh, th these events happen prior to the reign of Christ and, and that being a premillennial view. Um, there are aspects of this that seem to resonate with the idea that uh, Christ has been victorious from his resurrection and Satan has been bound since then so that that reign has been continuous from the resurrection until today, which is the amillennial view. Um, there are, of course, other views. Um, the the postmillennial view is gaining increasing popularity today that we can actually make the world a better place before Christ uh, returns. Um, and so many in, who are focusing a lot of attention on social justice issues uh, from a Christian perspective are taking a post-millennial position. Um, as I shared with you guys earlier today, I'm not satisfied, to be honest, with any of them. Uh, uh, I think there has to be another another uh, understanding here that isn't so uh, pristine, if you will, in those three categories. And I don't know exactly what that is. But let me see if if this makes sense to you guys, because there are, of course, aspects of what you've described that I appreciate from both of you. Uh, that, Don, I really appreciate the fact that you highlight the the purpose here. That so that the nations will no longer be deceived. And I think it is very appropriate to highlight those uh, five aorist active indicative verbs uh, describing the binding, the, the seizing, the uh, throwing, the shutting, and the sealing of Satan into the bottomless, bottomless pit. And to me, those are definitive actions that have a specific endpoint, uh, they occurred, and it's a, a done deal. It doesn't seem to allow very much wiggle room there for uh, Satan to have a long chain where he can continue to influence people. Uh, th that being said, I wonder, as we look back at chapter nine, uh, with the fifth trumpet, um, where we read, of course, that uh, there's an, uh, a star has fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and the shaft rose, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. I'm reading in chapter 9, verse 2. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts uh, on the earth and they were given power, like the power of scorpions. And of course, we can go back and uh, revisit our session on, on uh, uh, the fifth trumpet. But it, it seems to me that if, if, in fact, Satan has been bound since the time of Christ and no longer has authority or no longer can deceive the nations himself, that perhaps this demonic, what seems to be clear demonic activity described as locusts, um, they are deceiving the nations. Uh, that they do have some sort of power. Uh, that they are not to harm those who have uh, God's mark on their foreheads. 
but uh, they were allowed to torment, verse 5 says, uh, for five months, but not to kill them, um, uh, and, and so on. And, uh, and there's, you know, description of war and these, these types of things that are here. And so there, there's, if, in fact, Satan is bound since the time of Christ, and David, I appreciate your references to uh, Jesus being the strong man, that certainly he is bound. I, I appreciate the early church tradition of Christus Victor, that, that because of what Jesus has done, we're victorious over Satan, sin, and, uh, uh, yeah. and death. Thank you. Um, and so there is victory there. I wonder, though, if that victory is intended for the believer um, and not so much for the unbeliever. That's, of course, a, a different discussion. But, David, you raised the question of the gospel going forward as being an indicator that uh, Satan is not deceiving the nations because the gospel is freely going forward and people are coming to Christ. And, of course, we hear these reports all over the world and uh, and we rejoice as at how the gospel has gone forward. It's clear indication that Christ has indeed all authority on heaven and earth. And he has a group of people that he has sent, that namely us, his followers, his disciples, to make disciples of uh, all peoples. And so that, that's clear as well. Um, the puzzling thing here, and, I, and David, your question is a good one, uh, but I pose a different question uh, that, that I think gets to the same uh, idea, um, is are the nations no longer deceived? Um, because with the binding of Satan here and the purpose that John, uh, John, that Don points out, John pointed out as well, uh, much better than Don, by the way, uh, that John points out is that he's no longer going to deceive the nations. Um, in my observation of the world today, um, it, it raises that question. Is this true? Are the nations not being deceived? And so I, this came to mind because of yesterday, we had a young man come to our door, knock on our door. He's from uh, outside of Houston, Texas. And uh, has come all the way up to, to Michigan to work to sell uh, uh, some sort of insecticide that would protect our home from ants and ticks and fleas. And uh, so we struck up a conversation on our doorstep, and I come to find out that he's a Mormon. And uh, so we begin to talk about the different um, opinions, uh, theological opinions about Jesus. And of course, the Mormons believe that Jesus is a procreated being, um, uh, not God in the Trinitarian sense of historic Christian uh, tradition. And, uh, and so it, it made me think, are we, are people no longer deceived? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, people continue to be deceived. And it seems to me that this is a strategic tactic of the evil one uh, to deceive. Now, do these locusts, these this demonic activity, have the same power of deception as Satan would have? Um, well, you think of Paul 
in his descriptions of Satan that he he uh, disguises himself as an angel of light. Uh, Peter seems to be very aware uh, of satanic activity. Uh, that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. So, so yeah, I'm kind of mixed on that. Um, and then I, you know, I just started doing some other thinking about the potential deceptive nature of Satan and uh, his his clearly demonic activity. Just thinking historically, um, Islam is that not a deceptive? Uh, view of an absolute monotheism. Uh, and which, by the way, came into existence after Christ after, right. was resurrected and ascended. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, th so this is, I, I, I hate to interrupt you, I'm sorry I did, but this is why I have some of these, uh, some, a discomfort with some view. Yeah. Even even though I might be able to squeeze my mind down a little bit to uh, to understand well, it in a small way. Yeah, well, that's why I'm wondering: is there a fourth view here that uh, we need to explore? And and perhaps one of our listeners or course participants would uh, venture into that exploration. But um, but you know certainly the various religions around the world are demonstrating this clear deception. Granted, Don, I think you rightly point out that Islam, uh, which which uh, rises in the 600s, um, is after Christ's ascension. Um, you think of the deception of the Jews, even um, in in their strict monotheism that has no allowance for a Trinitarian view of who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, you think of the various new religious movements, like the young man who is a Mormon who was at our door yesterday, or Jehovah's Witnesses, who both uh, have an Aryan form of Christology. That um, you think of even Gnostic uh, Christologies that developed in the in the second century, and so on, and different Christological heresies uh, that were deceptively. Uh, distracting from the gospel. You think of civil religion, and we talked about that so much uh, that throughout the, the course of um, our time together, how distracting that has been with a very deceptive kind of almost messianic political uh, feel to it. And so it, it seems to me that there is clearly deception occurring. Um, is it instigated by Satan himself? Or by his uh, his uh, demonic minions, or, or or what? Or by the human heart? Um, or by the human heart? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a perhaps it is a question of degrees. So the text says uh, middle of verse three, twenty verse three, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Um, perhaps we're coming at this from the wrong angle, being uh, you know early 21st century modern postmodern types. Uh, we tend to exert an exactitude in our interpretations. However, uh, trying as best as my mind can wrap around this to come at this 
from a first century perspective uh, where we know from particularly Daniel that there were geographic spiritual strongholds, right? The Prince of Persia, for instance. Um, I am wondering if our understanding and even our historical citations of certain movements that we all agree on are deceptive are of a different nature or degree of deception than what John is talking about here, what he was told or what he saw, uh, in the sense that the those spiritual uh, principalities were broken by Christ's incarnation and death and resurrection. So that while there's still deception going on, there is no longer, uh, it, it's not as organized as it once was. It's a, it's a, a different, genus of deception and maybe i'm using that word wrong but um i i don't know that anyone could argue i mean we could argue if it's a literal 100 universal end to deception i i don't know that that's what is being said i don't know that that's what's being implied um so in my mind i am interpreting this from the perspective of spiritual geography versus uh, socio-political geography, as it were. And again, it, it's not a mountain to die for. It's just I'm, I'm trying to flesh this out both for my own benefit, but also to kind of speak into this conversation we're having uh, between the three of us and all of our new friends uh, joining in. Um, and it could very well be that all of them think I'm crazy and I'm daft and I'm, you know, holding to my tradition. I'm, I'm trying to hold less to my tradition and more, uh, how I see scripture synthesized here. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that. And I mean, that's clear to, I, to me, uh, that, that you're, that you're doing that. And I think we, we all are trying to do that. All three of us are mm -hmm. trying to do that. Um, I know, Don, uh, you come from multiple traditions. Uh, I know you had to have been a pre-millennialist at one point just because of your background with the, the free church, I, I'm assuming. Uh, and now with a reformed tradition, an amillennialist. Um, my background has been pre-millennialist, but you know what? I'm increasingly dissatisfied uh, with that as a response because of the tendency toward pessimism uh, that we see in premillennialism. Uh, I, I mean, there is an optimistic side to it, uh, of course. And that's why I wonder if, if uh, our penchant to create categories or to create theologies is, uh, is hindering our ability really to get at the text uh, with the eyes of the first century. Because and we we uh, and I've pointed this out before that you know there are many who will argue that the premillennial view was a, a, a early uh, a provenance uh, beginning in the in the second century. Tertullian, as some would argue, held a premillennial view as he was a Montanist. Uh, the, others have argued that Victorinus held a premillennial view, although I think that is somewhat disputed. 
Um, uh, but it seems clear that even with uh, Augustine, unless you're reformed, that Augustine was a premillennialist. <laughs> well, and this is the direction I was going to go. One, with respect to the reformed tradition, re- it does not necessarily equal that a reformed person cannot be premillennial. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, it does not mean that if you believe that Christ is the victor and that Satan is ultimately defeated, but it's here, but not yet. You know, we haven't seen the final fulfillment. Um, so I don't think it b- means that I have a contradiction in my system or in my understanding. I have a difficulty in understanding what is a traditional view on this issue in the Reformed tradition. But I would uh, hasten to add that uh, to believe that Christ rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, is victorious over all, does not necessarily mean that you have to take Revelation 20 as something that has already happened. Mm. And so I think there can be a premillennial understanding that prior to Christ coming, there is going to be a millennial reign. And for those who are hearing this and not watching it, I'm using air quotes. <laughs> Uh, to refer to the millennial return of Christ, meaning meaning it may be a thousand years. A thousand years is a long time, but it may also be a metaphorical expression and mean just a very long period of time. And I don't want to get hung up on that to say, well, it has to be literal or it's absolutely metaphorical. Either way, it's a long period of time. Um, But as, as we come here, I think what we really want to affirm amongst each other and for those who are listening is that we believe ultimately that Satan is a defeated foe and that Christ is victor over all. I mean, could we could all affirm that? Amen. A hearty amen. What I see here is that uh, Christ is indeed the victor. Satan is indeed, will ultimately be absolutely defeated, and all those who follow him. Having read Beale, I'm encouraged with how he breaks down uh, the hermeneutical approach, not just to this passage, but just in general. And he calls us to differentiate between three levels of interpretation there's the visionary level, what John mm-hmm. saw. Uh, there's the um, symbolic level, that is what the items in the vision actually mean, uh, biblically above and beyond any specific historical reference. And then there's the historical level. Um, And again, I think if we can keep these in mind, it is helpful in the long run uh, to try and apply these to any particular part of this book, but especially to this passage. And, and not that we're going to get it right the first time, the second time, or, or the third time, um, but it is to recognize that interpreting this passage specifically uh, requires a, a nuanced approach. We don't want to get stuck in saying, well, everything's symbolic, therefore it can mean anything you want it to mean. 
but neither do we want to fall into the trap of trying to figure out a one-for-one correspondence between every last detail and how it works out in the newspaper. Uh, Because in the least, I think it takes our eyes off of Christ and his mission to the church to take the gospel to the nations. So that regardless of what level of deceit we're talking about or or the range of Satan, how long his leash is, um, we still have this charge from Christ to take the gospel out, regardless of the opposition that we may encounter. Um, And my fear is that when we fall into the trap of of just assuming a historical level of interpretation, we end up navel-gazing and really only being concerned for our own comfort level and our own situation, our own context. We, we We tend to lose sight of the big picture of God's sovereignty, of God's call on our lives to participate in this great commission. I'm wondering if Beale's uh, three levels of interpretation might correspond somewhat to the genre of literature that we have here, apocalyptic, prophetic, and epistolary literature. So, for example, I did allude to earlier in expressing my dilemma with my viewpoint or my confusion with respect to my viewpoint that we must remember that it's apocalyptic, that it is meant to fire the imagination. We are not to take things literally. But also, um, we have not talked much about the prophetic nature of the book. Uh, And this might be a point where we would want to enter into that just a little bit more uh, earnestly. So that, for example, if this is not past, or present, but future, then we may have a prophetic element here. But we are also keeping in mind uh, the epistolary nature. He's writing to a specific audience who heard this, and we would always ask the question, what were their circumstances, and how did they understand it? Mm-hmm. And we have delved a little bit into second uh Temple Judaism and some of their writings, uh, Enoch and uh, First Enoch, I think it was. Um, so, uh, David, what I'm doing is basically agreeing with you that we need to back up and we need to consider the different dimensions and layers and hermeneutical spirals and the recapitulation of what's going on here and try to make as much sense of it as we can without imposing. Uh, my predefined template on top of it. So that's honestly what I'm trying to do. Um, Now, it's true, Michael, uh, you're right. I was uh, pretty much came to know Christ in a premillennial environment. In fact, you would not believe it, but the church where I heard the gospel, they had that on their sign, Granite Baptist Church. Fundamental, independent, Bible-believing, dispensational, pre-tribulational, you know, all that was on the sign. And, you know, I needed uh, several definitions and several teachers to explain the sign to me. But uh, what I'm saying is, yes, I'm guilty as charged 
but I've moved away from that to a great degree so that I am uh, in the Reformed tradition at this point in my life. Uh, but this is one point where it's a little bit of a sticking point. So I'm, I'm trying to come at it honestly with a, a broader lens rather than a laser focus. And I, I appreciate that. And I think uh, we all appreciate that because it, this is a, a difficult uh, passage. But I think, Don, where you were headed a moment ago in, in uh, helping us to think through where do we all agree? Well, we all agree Satan is a defeated foe, uh, that Christ will reign victoriously. And David, in relationship to how this is going to encourage the churches, boy, I mean, you see the church in here. Uh, the verse four, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. It, this is reflecting back, it seems, to Revelation chapter 2, 26 and 3, 21. Uh, we, uh, you know, two of the seven churches uh, are, are potentially being referenced here. Uh, I also saw the souls of those who had beheaded um, uh, for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast in its image, and so there's there's promise and there's hope here as well for those who remain faithful uh, to Christ through whatever is going on, through the deception, through uh, the, the attacks, through the persecution, and so on. Those who remain faithful at one in one day, whenever that will be, will be with Christ, uh, reigning with Him. And so there is great encouragement. And then uh, in verse six, that over the second death, uh, um, the second death has no power over those who, uh, who share in the first resurrection. Instead, they will be priests of God. And this, of course, uh, hearkening back to Revelation chapter one, verse six, John's already told us that uh, we are priests. Um, and so here again, we see those who are remaining faithful to Christ through difficulties, um, continuing to be faithful to the testimony of Jesus and to the word of God are going to be those who reign with Christ, uh, whether it is now uh, in a uh, amillennial sense or if it's in the future in a premillennial sense. That, that would, whenever that is, it is true. Just an observation that may tell us that we have moved on in a temporal sense is that in chapter 5, we saw the souls under the altar crying out and saying, How long, O Lord? You know, they were looking for God's judgment to come to vindicate them. And that's what we have in the latter part of verse 4. Uh, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Um, it, it, yes, the beginning of verse 4, I saw thrones and seated on them were those whom, to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God had not worshipped the beast. They came to life. It seems that now is their moment of vindication. There was a point when they were under the all under the altar, crying out for this vindication. It now seems that not only are they vindicated, 
but they sit in the seat of judgment. So that may, I mean, that's a, that's a difference between what we saw in chapter 5 and what we see in chapter 20. Good observation. Well, you know, uh, Don, I like what your buddy Michael Gorman says. Yeah, let's hear it. Uh, and I appreciated so much reading this and his reading Revelation responsibly. He said, like John, however, we do not need to say much about the millennium. Uh, John <laughs> spends short uh, six short verses on this, and uh, from there we, we, we move on. Uh, although the picture doesn't get uh, brighter uh, in one sense, because as John continues in verse 7, and when the thousand years ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That sounds pretty decisive and final. It does, doesn't it? Uh, Satan is defeated, uh, ultimately, in, uh, in this picture. Maybe I'll just continue with verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, obviously uh, the Ancient of Days, uh, God himself. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Uh, who are the them? Uh, those who were uh, assembled before, I suppose. And I saw the dead, great and small. This is who they are. They're now identified. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So it's interesting. We we have apparently something uh, called the uh, the first death and the second death, the first resurrection and the second resurrection. Apparently, by implication, uh, but John is actually he's bringing us to the end. He's setting the scene for us. Um, and notice that the judgment of human beings follows the defeat of Satan. Uh, so whether this is apocalyptic, prophetic, or epistolary, I think what we can say is Satan is defeated and God has the final word. And in his judgment, um, we also see the glory of God because he judges perfectly and righteously and truly. And this seems too to serve as a, another warning. It seems like John is is setting us up, or at least letting his readers know, whoever they would be, that these things are coming. And, uh, and it's interesting that he points out that there are multiple books here. 
that people will be judged by. Um, uh, and, and I think it's probably important for us also to note, at least I think it's important to note that it seems apparent that uh, the, the faithful are with, with Christ, that what we see in verses 11 to 15 are not talking about those who are faithful, but uh, those who have not, who are not uh, in the recorded in the book of life. Do you think I'm uh, presenting that accurately? I, I would agree with that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're talking about all the people who have, uh, whether explicitly or implicitly, resisted the gospel. Uh, it's a Romans 1 moment kind of thing that uh, whether they were given over to worship false idols because of their own depravity or uh, because they just chose to ignore the gospel, resist the gospel. We're looking at the kind of culmination of this at the end of history. It, it's it's the logical conclusion to the Great Commission. In, in verse 12, once again, just with reference to the books were open, Michael, you did mention the plural. Um, and we would, and well, I would assume that one of those is the Book of Life, or maybe the Book of Life has several volumes. But then we read that then another book was open. Uh, well, okay, the Book of Life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, again, keeping in mind, this is um, apocalyptic literature. Regardless, what it does with my imagination is this. There's a page with my name on it. And my acts, my deeds are written out on that page. Now, is that the acts and the deeds of the faithful? Well, I, I hadn't gotten there yet. Now, and I'm not sure that I'm, you know, I want God to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Uh, but it says, uh, and those who were not written in the book of life, another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Um, either it doesn't say or I'm not reading it closely enough, but I guess what I what I was getting at is my imagination goes to this. You stand before God and he says, look, here's the record. You know, and as you look at this record, you're defenseless. You know, the, the, the case has been made against you. It's that meeny, 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 tickle, uparsen moment. <laughs> you know, well, I think this underscores for the church today the critical that we need to take God's call on us as part of his church seriously. Uh, there's no messing around. I mean, it, it's, it's all well and good for us to have 
moments of joy and celebration within the life of the church, but those should never overshadow God's purpose for the church to bear witness to the world of God's loving sacrifice and call to repentance in the name of Jesus Christ. And if there's one thing I think we can see in our own age, if not testify against, is that there are so many churches who are so curved inward on themselves that they resemble more of a religious social club in terms of celebrating the life of that local body than they are in terms of trying to get out the gospel in their Jerusalem and their Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And uh, unless somebody wants to come away from this and say, oh, clearly this passage speaks to universal salvation. Uh, I don't know how you could come away with that interpretation, uh, particularly with these last few verses of this chapter. However, uh, just the opposite. We, we see that disbelief carries a heavy and ultimately uh, eternal price to it. And we are we so burdened that we're not moved with compassion for those people who are currently dead in their sins, the first death perhaps, um, and are on track to enter into the second death for eternity. Well, and that's what I'm wondering if John is pointing this out uh, once again to whoever would read this, that there is a time uh, that this is going to happen. And you want to be sure that your name is written in the book of life. Absolutely. Um, I mean, thinking back to the seven churches, right? These are the, this is the original audience, these seven churches, the people that make up these congregations. And you know, how many of them received rebukes in those seven letters? Uh, we we know clearly from Jesus's parable of the wheat and the tares that not everybody who's sitting in a pew is necessarily saved. And so in the least, if you're one of the members of those seven churches and you've been kind of riding along on somebody else's coattails, this should be a wake-up call. If, if you're hearing Jesus say, look, you've lost your first love, or you know, you're neither hot nor cold, so I'm going to vomit you out, this is your wake-up call. But it's also, it, it kind of puts the exclamation point at the end of the sentence that people will be judged and found wanting because they did not want Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. But we still have an opportunity to be used by God to bring them into his orbit. Well, there's no doubting it's, uh, it's, a, um, it's a wake-up call for me. It should be a wake-up call for all of us that uh, confess Christ. And, of course, that means the church. Um, you know, when was the last time I preached a sermon like this based on this text? Uh, or when was the last time I heard one like this? Uh, 
I would say it's been a very long time. Yes. Well, as we've stated from the very beginning, this is uh, one of the more difficult books of the Bible and, and perhaps one of the most abused books as well. And, and uh, hopefully we're trying to add some clarification as we're uh, wrestling through these things. We don't have all the answers, as you can obviously tell from our conversation on Revelation chapter 20, but we would love to hear from you and uh, give us your thoughts about the uh, reign of Christ. Is it premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, uh, about the judgment and even about the battle that we see here uh, that we didn't really get into, but certainly John has uh, talked about that battle that's to occur where Satan is ultimately defeated and thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Um, and so we're grateful that you've been uh, persevering with us through uh, our study of the book of Revelation and look forward to interacting with you in the discussion forum. Mm-hmm.